Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil. Where? A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will Black get away with saying, just as planned? Who is this dread empress triumphant? May she never return. Anyway. With Eris foiled and the lone swordsman merely a rung on the ladder of Catherine's rising power, what can stand in our protagonist's way now? What say you, Empress of Praise? Here you lie upon the blood-soaked ruins of your dominion, surrounded by the corpses of the legions that once swarmed over the world, hundreds of thousands dead for the sake of your wretched ambition, your mad design to bring to heal the kingdoms of man. In all the history of creation, no one woman has been so wicked as you, and I will have my answer. Why, O oh Empress of Ruins? She shrugged. Why not? Last lines of the fall of Empress Triumphant. First and only of her name. Well, here we are at the epilogue of book one. Uh, We've had quite the breakneck pace here at the end with it, within the war college and uh for this chapter here this epilogue we zoom way out and we see what's been going on in the world around the college and in the rest of colonia mostly in callow and Prace. and we get a couple of perspectives we check in on our old well, i was gonna say pal but we do not like him we check in on william we hear from eris and we get the protagonist view or at least the adjacent to protagonist view from black but before any of that happens we get one of the more honestly metal epigraphs in the entire series with (laughs) uh another bit from dread empress triumphant may she never return it is a it is 
such a powerful a little piece there and I, I i don't really have anything specific to say but i felt we would be remiss in moving past it without at least commenting on how very good it is i've said it before and i will say it again not yet at this point in the series i'll let you know when we get there but there seems to be a lot suggesting that our dear fallen now empress might return might figure in as at least a major historical precedent a lever of treasure as a creator of a method which Catherine might follow and no she's just a fantastic history because people remember to say may she never return and that worked but even now we get the sense of how oh apparently it'd be really cool to have a character devoted to the classical method of evil a tyrant of some kind who just is all pomp and circumstance and in the questionable usage but classical sense in the genre madness of evil possibly with a glowing red eye or gargoyles or something that'd be really fun to have you know it would be fun to have and uh you know who knows where the story will lead something akin to that might show up not that precisely obviously but something like it a little more than kin and much less than kind that all established, this chapter begins six months later, in 1324 AD, on the 5th of Maja, in Marchford. The 5th of Maja. That just, huh. We get a month. I didn't pay much mind to this on the first read-through, because, okay, first time a date comes up, we've got a month, whatever. I'm, or what I assume is a month. Maybe Maja is a special holiday that's never established, Maybe, but... Let's be real. It's a month. How many days are in a month in this world? How many months in a year? How long is a year? I assume roughly equivalent to our calendar, but well, we I have no reason it, to. We know that at the very least, Maja has nine days, so there's that. But past that, yeah, I, I don't recall the names of months or, frankly, even days showing up, particularly in Practical Guide, which is a, you know, a fantasy trope that I don't have a problem with at all just leaving that kind of background but uh to see it here yeah i'm curious as well but that is not the point i really want to get into to start off with so to open the podcast with nothing else having been mentioned or talked about yet we're looking at william who is killing an orc with a casual flick of his wrist great we've got a hero doing hero things the sword keens mournfully. It takes the greenskin's life. Great! I'm cool with this. I'm not on William's side, necessarily, but he's doing normal hero things. This is fine. He's been a pretty nifty character so far-ish. Time heals many wounds. But then, dude, I believe in forgiveness. I believe in trying to understand people's perspectives. William is bad and is unlikable, and he's not worth talking about, and I don't like him because he's bad. The next line about the orc he killed. The officer had died bravely, as bravely as one of his species could. Hey, Billy? Not cool. Racism is bad even when it's, like, special. Special racism is not special racism removed from the category of being bad. I hate you, William. Yeah, we made it till this, all of, all of book one, he's around for a few scenes here and there, and he's 
being set up to be very important in Kat's story, but we don't get his actual perspective on things until now. And boy, does seeing his perspective really take away any sympathy one could feel for him, like for his arguments that he makes with Kat. He's clearly not the most sympathetic character even before this. Like the way he thinks about things and talks about things is fine for the bullheaded hero archetype but then you get to this chapter and it all just like he takes a turn and it's not great well he doesn't really take a turn our perspective is forced to take a turn but this got me thinking you do you recall when william met cat and he in summerholm if i'm not mistaken he had apparently some kind of truth telling ability where he could talk to cat and figure out whether she was lying that kind of thing what are the odds, knowing what we now know about Kat's heritage, that in reality that scene was just him looking for hints of whether or not she was fully human, and that's what made him decide that she was she needed to die? Because I'm kind of sticking with that head headcanon at this point. That's when she opens her mouth for the first time. And so he sees her teeth. There we go. <laughs> Perfect. I guess, well, that's solved. He can't sense the truth. He can just... He knows what to look for to tell us somebody's human or not. Fully human. And that's why the saying goes, never look a gift insurrectionist in the mouth. That is why the saying goes like that. You're right. But Oh, well. He'll get rid of all the orcs and put something much more pleasant in, in, and put something much more pleasant in their place. Massive sarcasm quotes. He's, he's not just a weird racist bigot where he's like, ah, orcs are, um, to use his word here, filthy. But instead... He's also, not instead, but he's also just dumb. He's just not a smart man. Uh, he's got these, he's one of those monarchists who doesn't seem particularly interested in any kind of critical thinking or introspection. Because a couple of paragraphs later, we get the line, putting a complete imbecile on the throne of Callow was something William was going to have to live with, unfortunately. he They have somebody to step up into the the onto the throne, somebody to rule Callow. And rather than William trying to make sure that, that this monarch is the ideal person for the role or anything like that, it's just, well, this is what the laws say and we're going to do it. Even if I recognize maybe this person is bad, what can you do? Despite the fact that at an individual personal level, William is maybe the most powerful Callowin alive, ignoring Cat because she's kind of crazy a little bit at this point. It's just, he just doesn't want, Callow to him is somebody on the throne, and that's the that's incredibly important. And as long as that person has the right blood or claim or whatever, it doesn't matter how good of a ruler they are. Yeah, William, William has a lot going for him in the, haha, he's a funny anime protagonist. But he also is just an awful person all the way around and doesn't doesn't have a lot of, there's not really many sympathetic perspectives left for him. It makes me very glad that we got rid of monarchy in the real world totally and 100% and nobody would defend it to this day. Oops. Though, my very open public history of disdaining monarchy, disdaining nobility, disdaining classes in general, does have one single fictional exception due entirely to a swelling of lust. And this is as all listeners know. And I got to wonder about William's take on my future wife, Cordelia Hassenbach. We see that the Duke, whom, yeah, the Duke to whom William would give the throne, or 
whom William would see ascend to the throne is being bankrolled by Prosser and Silver, bankrolled by the first prince. And as William expositions this at us, he notes he was not so much of a fool to be unaware the cold-eyed woman had designs on Callow herself, which, unless I misread terribly, means, he says, Cordelia Hassenbach wants to take Callow. And I know, we see her, in fact, having a crusade come through her country to take Callow and campaign on the tower and all. But I can't imagine Cordelia Hassenbach actually would want the trouble of more disunity to have to manage. Managing their highest assembly is something well within her power, as we see, but it's exhausting. She does not deserve Callow. And I mean that affectionately and supportively. Plus, in this setting, fully conquering another sovereign state is more headachey than even it ever was in real life, because that basically is speaking directly to creation and saying, please make a bunch of rebellious named... Please create out of whole cloth, a bunch of incredibly powerful, rebellious names to fight against us, because that's what's going to happen. The only reason Do we don't see that in... Callow would produce nationalist <laughs> named trying to free it? The only reason that doesn't happen in Callow much so far is because the Calamities are ruthlessly efficient in smothering those nascent names. All five of them. All seven pricey names in total. Seven or eight. Right. Against a kingdom that's just churning out dozens every year. One does slip through the cracks, and Cat had a chance to, you know, stop that gap up a little bit and chose not to. But, you know, that's what we're dealing with right now. And That's fine, because he's going to save the day. He's going to save Callow. Only, he wants to save the idea of Callow, and more specifically, he wants to save the government of Callow, because in his, in William's discussion here, where he's talking about how yeah cordelia is funding this and that's fine and she wants callow that's fine his follow the reason that he's okay with her wanting callow is because he's already leading one rebellion i'm more than happy to lead another if i have to he's basically saying i'm willing to pay for this rebellion which is going to cost a ton of callow and lives with more callow and lives down the line he's it's a line of death credit that he's setting up here i can't imagine a worse thing for callow than unnamed who just fights war after war after war with them for seven or so books. Now, this feels like you're drawing some kind of comparison between William and someone else, but I don't know who. Probably the Grilgrim, because I have mm. said bad things about those two and pretty much only those two. Yeah. The Grilgrim is a rough guy that we love to hate. Bill is a rough guy that we hate. I look forward to seeing his comeuppance. <laughs> yeah. Listen, great character. He's, you know, it's nice to have like an objectively just evil guy who with no sympathy. You got to have some of those. He's an important he's an important part of Cat's journey, but man does William suck. William is weighing the threats to his rising and hopefully soon freed Callow. He looks at Praise, he looks at Prosser. We know there's nothing really to the north or south of Callow, but down in a non geomagnetic sense there is another nation he starts thinking about the kingdom under and he deems it a much greater worry because dwarves have dwarven mercenaries 2000 dwarven veterans had appeared in mercantis just when he was buying merchant buying mercenary contracts 
And he's worried because if the king under the mountains were to move, that would be terrible. No single nation, says William, had a military whose size equaled even a tenth of what the dwarves could muster if they felt like it. And he's not wrong that the dwarves are vast and powerful by all above-ground standards. Yes, of course. But we know a bit more about the dwarves now and how, even at this point, they're hanging by a thread and not really doing much against the gloom, trying to, but they're occupied. Mm -hmm. But the surface nations don't know that. But it's fun to know things you don't know. Agreed. And that is dramatic irony. I also know that all people have value. So, um, except William. Right. And the Grilgrim. So, and Ratface's father. <laughs> True. Good point. Although, keep in mind. And those guards in the alley. Ratface's father. Ratface is spitting image of his dad, right? And that means his dad oh. is super hot. I take back every bad thing I said about him. Maybe I need to be punished. <laughs> so, speaking of being punished. So, apparently. William, who I would like to remind everyone at this point is alive, had, we know, been admonished by the squire whom he had failed to defeat. And we get word that that dismissal had been a lash on his back all the way to refuge, where he knelt at the feet of the Lady of the Lake and asked to be taken as a pupil. She denied him, not unkindly. After the defeat at Summerholm, that had been all... That had almost been enough to break him. <laughs> what a chump. First of all, the audacity of this man. <laughs> he wants to be an anime protagonist. That's why names make you what you think you are. But he can't. First of all, he should count himself lucky that he's alive. Yep. Secondly, someone said no to him, and it nearly broke him. Our poor little protagonist, our poor little hero... The sad little guy who just can't get a break. All he wants to do is start a rebellion, but the squire was mean to him, and the lady of the lake wouldn't teach him. And in telling him no, she also told him that he wasn't good enough to beat her old pupil. Now, the lady of the lake has pupils who are very talented, very good at what they do, some more than others, but none of them are, none of them have the swordsman in their name. Will is just, he seems like he should be basically the sword guy, aside from the saint. And, and you know, ranger, but she's cheating, kind of. And he rolls up here and she's like, yeah, my non-melee-focused pupil would kind of wipe the floor with you, so uh, get lost. This guy really needs to figure out how to fight. But we, uh, we do get a little more information. We talked about this a lot when he showed up. Um, we we find out that um, some of his we find out a little bit more about his name. Uh, he's the lone swordsman, and we commented on maybe that's why he's so so bad at fighting because he's got this whole rebellion around him. Um, but here there seems to be an implication, a pretty strong implication that the lone in his name means that he's not part of a band of heroes. He's not in a band of five. He doesn't have other named people around him. Uh, specifically named, not just any kind of person, since uh, it says his role thrived on being solitary, and then goes on to say that the eyes of the Empire couldn't find him because he'd never been part of a band of heroes. So, you know, he's not, he is sticking with his role better than we 
talked about, and I know we did mention this possibility, but we we get some confirmation here, which is nice. Sometimes when we do the three read, we find problems like that, and then we solve them later, or find that the work solved them. And sometimes we have to solve them ourselves. But sometimes in rereading something, in rereading this, something that hadn't really stuck out as very important turns out to be immediately understandable, and I just think it's cool that I didn't know before. So Bill goes to the ranger. Ranger laughs him off. Nearly breaks the poor guy. He finds the gates to Arcadia resplendent because because heroes cheat. He asks Ranger's permission to go through. The text reads, this boon she'd seen fit to grant. In reality, she shrugged and says, eh, it's on your head. He spends a year in the realm of the Fae, gets a lot of practice, it's cool. He leaves a month later in the real world because time is weird. But he's ready to crush the squire when they next meet. Because, the next line, the pattern had been set. There was no avoiding it. I know what this means. Because the first time through, it's like, okay, William's just saying, well, now there's an order to things and story matters. No, there's more than just story here. There's a story about stories here. There's a pattern of three. A pattern of three. It, I was thinking about this when I got to this point as well. The rules of name lore, the sort of underpinnings of how these stories interact with each other, are pretty brutal. Like they they strongly encourage brutality and finality in in fights. If you come into conflict with somebody who could, in any conceivable way, become a rival of yours, you are heavily incentivized to kill them on the spot to not to to end a fight permanently because if you win your first fight with somebody but don't kill them you've basically just set yourself up to be defeated strategically two fights later two encounters later if you come across a new enemy it's just objectively in universe the right choice to kill them the first time and i i I don't know there's the fact that the the rules the patterns lean that way is uh it kind of makes sense since all of the people here are exist basically as the pieces moving around to fulfill a wager made and that the people don't actually matter that much. But it's still a pretty shocking, brutal realization. Ah, I hate to do this in the epilogue, but I'm going to give in to my worser inclinations. In a comparison to Worm Alert, Worm, we know that the capes, the superheroes and supervillains in that world, are fundamentally metaphysically coerced towards conflict by the nature of their powers. Mm-hmm. Here, it hasn't seemed to me, like for the most part, a it is an inherent piece of names that bring conflict but rather names arise in response to conflict and come to those who are embroiled in the conflicts and may leave after the conflicts. But being the bumbling conjurer doesn't mean there's now a new thing driving you to bumble your conjuring. Well, driving you to overthrow the dread vizier or whatever the local name is. It it does depend on the specific name. And I think many, if not, names do have a drive that will put them in conflict with 
if not general forces, then specific other names. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. But it's not a personality shift in the same way. It's rather a personality match. Right. It's a, it's I a, would think. It's a personality... It's a situation. It's a personality exaggeration. And it brings opportunity for those exaggerations to come into play because yes. you're not going to be the upstart usurper in a utopia where you're content. Eris. There, there would not... Pardon? Uh, go ahead. But the rules of the setting do a lot to extra nominally encourage violence. Fun. And speaking of violence, we get uh, a, a brief call. We get a brief memory from William of the, uh, the fight to, um, to finish taking Marchford in rebellion to, to have the rebellion overtake the city and, de- and declare it for Callum more or less. And as he's talking about it, he talks, he says that the 12th Legion or part of it was stationed in Marchford and that the street is now filled with dead legionaries because a full quarter of the 12th Legion had refused to surrender, singing the legionary song as they made a stand against thrice their number. So there's a couple things here. First of all, if I recall correctly, the legions in uh, the the Trace's legions are 4,000 strong on paper, so a full quarter, 1,000 legionaries refused to surrender, meaning William's got about 3,000 people under his command at this point. That's a, you know, that's a real rebellion. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one. But I, I guess my question here is more, why did the legionaries refuse to surrender or retreat? I know they go on to, you know, orcs, and they fought because they like to fight, whatever. I, I just, they are being cut down, they're in this situation, and a thousand people individually decided to die for Prace? Is this, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, are these thousand orcs uh, personally loyal to the Empire, with the face being black, of course, to the extent that they're willing to die for it, for him, even here out just fighting a rebellion, or... Is this a situation where part of the relationship, the contractual contractual relationship that exists between the orcs and the empire, as far as military service goes, is there something in there of like retribution against their tribes if they flee a fight? Or you know, I'm I'm wondering how much coercion is in place to keep a thousand people willing to just be butchered in the streets of a city hundreds of miles from their homeland. You know, it's quite the question. And loyalty to Prace Estate obviously doesn't make sense. Loyalty to Black, the Liberator, the Reformer, yeah, does make some sense. But I checked. The Twelfth is known as Holdfast, which oh. could suggest an unusual degree of possibly loyalty, possibly uh, bravery, boldness, steadfastness, uh, holdfastitude, one may say. Fair enough. But either way, that kind of Biba Numancia-style bravery, yay unto certain death, is something many cultures, peoples, and places can really get behind. It's a courage that would be worthy of respect. Even Billy tells us, though he says it really horribly, uh, I want to make very clear I'm reading words from the text that are William the Lone Swordsman's words, and they're terrible 
because this is the kind of language which in real life usually precedes genocide, which is terrible. In fact, the worst thing. He writes, in a person, that kind of courage would have been worthy of respect, but greenskins were barely more sentient than animals. Just another horror crafted by the hell gods to plague creation, an endless horde of foot soldiers carrying the banner of evil. Billy is the worst character. This is uh, somebody who is labeled with capital H hero, just as a reminder for everybody. He is atrocious. And yep, looking forward to him getting all sorts of messed up by Cat later on. His perspective pieces are just, I don't remember if he gets another interlude, but his perspective piece at the very least is just brutal to get through. It's really easy to hate an oppressing power without hating a people group. Unless the people group is the oppressor. And that's yeah. not uh, an immutable trait. Yeah, and the orcs are... I mean, he hit on something important there. Yeah, the orcs are the foot soldiers of an evil empire. That's true. But they're also, you know, people. Like, fully. <laughs> they're just being used as foot soldiers of an evil empire because the alternative was, let's check back in history a little bit, being wiped off the face of the map, more or less, by incredibly skilled and dangerous enemies. So, But, but what about Callow? What about Callow? We, the problem is, after that, after, you know, all of William's anime protagonist vibes and all of his bigotry. All his anime protagonist Nazism. Right, yeah, you know. He's, no, he's got anime protagonist vibes, and also he's an awful genocidal bigot. The anime protagonist vibes don't go away, and they don't necessarily overlap with that part of who he apparently is but they're both there but he he gives up gets up in front of his rebellion and all of his his soldiers and gives a speech that is uh a little focused uh a little it, it reveals some blinders he's got for sure and he's got some very strong opinions on the value of a human life or a person's life uh you know since we're in a setting with non-human people um but well According to any sensible person, there are non-human people. But right, yes. But he, he, as part of that, he gives a speech that ends with a, you know, a cheer of Callow will be free. There's this whole national pride thing, and if he weren't such just the worst, if he weren't the worst, this would be pretty solid work for stirring up a rebellion. And you know, you could read this and hey, I've got some sympathy for William. But knowing what we know about him. The fact that he's giving this great speech about, ah, oh, we can't lick the Empress's boot and we can't, we got to be free and our own destiny and all these things. But the culmination of this speech is uh, hanging a bunch of prisoners of war. Little rough. And also, William is just rough generally, so that kind of takes away from the, the, the moment. William doesn't see it that way. William only sees the glory. He says, the heavens, after all, were on his side. Why else would they have granted him triumph as an aspect? And, okay, that's a fun point. Counterpoint, remember our epigraph today? I do. So that's the end of William's section. And now we move on to... The ninth our... of Maja. Mm -hmm. A few days later, four, four days later? We assume. <laughs> okay, the only reasonable interpretation here is that these are consecutive days of a month. However, I'm leaving open. I'm acknowledging the potential that maybe Maja is a holiday that's never brought up again, and it's broken up, you know? You have 
three days of Maja this weekend, three days of Maja the next, three days of Maja the next, because the weekend's three days, because again, not really discussed. Doesn't seem likely. I'm just acknowledging. Let's leave it open. Sure. I gotcha. But yeah, three days later, six days later, what day is it? It goes from the 5th to the 9th. Yeah, three days later, and then another day later, too. And we see a name here. If you were reading this for the first time, you might not know we're talking about Eris. But we see a name here, which I have looked up. Because I've had the conversations with other Americans of an academic middle class from mostly the American Midwest about the pronunciation of this name. I've heard Aqua... Aqua, all variations on what you might expect with English or Spanish or what have you, readings of the letters. But I realized I had to say it on a podcast. So I looked it up. And to my understanding, based on my research, and I encourage anyone to write in and correct me or inform me or collaborate with me, and I regret that we have very few listeners in Africa outside of Kenya. But this name seems to occur in Ghana, possibly with the meaning of born on a Wednesday. So um, maybe we do have these days of the week. Uh, maybe Wednesday was in Maja. But in the pronunciation, from what I could get, because there's very little IPA when I look up names, if you know better resources, please help me. This is something along the lines of Aquia, Aquia, which is not what I would expect from my initial reading of it. And I'm really grateful to have looked it up. And it's what I will be going with on this podcast going forward. But this is a fantasy character in a fantasy world. And you can't be wrong unless you call her George. So anyway, we, we catch up with Ubla as she is playing Shatrange. Correct. Which is a real uh, game. It's a predecessor of what eventually came to the West as chess. And it's really obvious reading this, even if you didn't know anything about the history of chess, this is just fantasy chess. But really, it's historical Middle Eastern chess. The only reason she was currently playing, however, was that, traditionally speaking, it was expected of her to play Shatranj while discussing the demise of her enemies. I love praise. It's traditionally expected to play the game while discussing your enemy's death. You know, you've got traditional poisons, traditional ways to discuss your enemy's death. They're awful. This is... I couldn't believe that any society on Earth, except possibly segments of the Roman court in particular corners of history, had any norms, anything like this. It is honestly such a strong decision by EE to have the early enemy of cat in the larger sense uh, you know not counting william b price um because this these early chapters where we are getting peeks into the eccentricities of price are so phenomenal it is all every time price comes up they are cartoonishly evil and i mean that basically literally in that these are the kind of things that a Saturday morning cartoon villain would do, and they just play these tropes straight, and it is phenomenal across the board. It it really sets Price apart and really adds a layer of, frankly, humor to the the setting in a not in a way that we're laughing at the setting, but laughing with it. And it's it's so good. Um, you know, if if the first villain had been uh, 
if, if we had started off with the Crusades, you know, if Proser being the villain, yeah, they've got their weird things, but it's mostly just like, hey, let's laugh at how dumb the rich people are. They don't have, they cannot hold a candle to the absurdity that is Prace. And so these these early chapters where we're getting so much of that are a delight. And it is honestly a tragedy that after this, we go so long before Prace is front and center again when Kat returns to do her conquering. Oh, yeah. It really was conquering, wasn't it? Good for her. Yep. Aquia is a paragon of Prace culture. She works hard to be not just the best she can be, but the best she can be in a Prece manner. But she isn't above critiquing her own society. It's fine that you play fantasy chess while talking about your enemies dying. It's fine that you've got poisons, but she recognizes that the old nobility was too stiff, too set in its ways, and it had transmitted that disease to their inheritors. Thankfully, her own mother was much more flexible in her ways and had raised her as such. The truth was that the empire was no longer the same as it had been in ages past. The reforms had granted rights to the Greenskins, and there would be no withdrawing those without a civil war. One the, one the nobility might not win, given that the vast majority of the current generations of orcs and goblins were legion-trained. I would like to make an addendum, I, your host, that... We also know that most of the leadership of the legions are orcs and goblins, and a dragon and a vampire, and ogres. This this little end of this paragraph here, I think, is it exemplifies something that we see pretty frequently in these early chapters where Prace is front and center, or at least where the legions are front and center. We very frequently get little details about the modern setting, about modern Prace, about the modern legions of terror that are delivered to us as though they are just a commentary on the development, on where things are so that characters can interact with them directly, so that it, we can see how individual characters uh, fit in ideologically with a change that's going on, where we have, you know, here Ubwa discussing a how the reforms affected orcs and goblins and how she fits in with that, how her perspective fits in with that. But these commentaries despite what they seem to be of just like hey here's how a character interacts with this thing also have another layer where we see that they function as these very powerful reminders of how incredibly skilled black was with his reforms uh he's not even here he's not in this scene he's not mentioned in this scene we're seeing only a reference to a series of procedures and, and protocols that he put into place but it is still telling us a lot about Black. It is telling us a lot about what he did to and for Prace um, and how groundbreaking on a, maybe not continent-wide, but at least half of the continent-wide uh, scale. The, the reforms of the Legions of Terror altered the geopolitical realities of Southern Colonia in a major way. And it, it's just, I don't know, we see... These like lines about ah here's where the greenskins are now and it always tells us a little bit more about Black and honestly by extension than Catherine because of how much she takes from him and I just think that's really cool to to see that show up it's it is storytelling and character development done at a incredibly high level and uh, so I just I really appreciate that about this story nice job E we also immediately following that 
paragraph uh, about the reforms, um, we get a little bit of insight into Eris, um, as I said, like how she fits into these changing ideologies. Um, she says, the old truth that greenskins were inferiors to the Seninke in every way was no longer valid, and so had to be discarded. Obviously, this isn't Eris being some noble moral person who is trying to argue for the you know equality of all mortal it's just a practical reality for her but it's still really noteworthy because of its juxtaposition with the previous section in this chapter in this epilogue we go from william to william who just has this bigoted heart buried deep in his shriveled chest and then we jump to upla who's like yeah, historically they were less than us, obviously, because we had more power than them. But that's not the case anymore. And so we're not going to interact with that notion in any reasonable way. It's not—it's just not worth discussing. It's wrong. And so we have one of the more personally evil, like actively evil people in this story. Ubla is a lot of things, and we love her, and she has some redemption arcs. And, but at this point, and for much of the story, she's just evil. There's no two ways around it. And she's the non-bigoted person, the the person who's interested in viewing people as people. And then we have the capital H hero who is just a bad dude. And we see that kind of thing all throughout the story. But this juxtaposition here is just, it's real nice. It's fantastic. Especially when when that itself is juxtaposed with the end of the paragraph where she thinks it's regrettable that she had to come to cross purposes with the Black Knight and she looks forward to removing Foundling because the Knight was much too pragmatic to hold a grudge over such a trifling matter. It's not anything like Billy's vile vileness. It's just murdering someone. That's fun. But she goes from, well, no. Racism is holding to an impractical and outdated norm. We won't even consider it. To... Well, I'll kill someone, and then it will be best for them to just accept it. I don't see the problem with that. <laughs> like I said, she's one of the more actively evil people. She's just not a bigot. We uh, we learn a little bit more uh, about sort of the background of the game, the the five way melee here. Um, Uba tried to punish Cat for having killed the the assassin. Didn't go anywhere, and as part of her attempt to do that. Black ordered that her messenger be killed, and his head and their head was dropped back at the mansion gates. Black knows what's going on; he's on top of things. And the person that uh, Eris, I think, bribed is what we see. Blackmailed the person that Eris blackmailed into uh, messing with Cat's start and the memory magic and all of that was crucified. Black knew about the cheating that was going on, obviously, no surprise there. Or, hmm, Black is informed about the cheating going on, no surprise there, thank you, Scribe. And he's he let it happen. It was either too late for him to easily step in and prevent it, or he wanted it to go on to teach Cat a lesson. But he definitely punished the people who were messing with Legion discipline, just as everyone knew he would. He stepped in and crucified a guy and killed a messenger who was pursuing legal recourse for a murder black is uh black knows what he's about but he can only go so far to quote from the story any arachnophobes stop listening for about 10 seconds 
The last time he'd caught a noble meddling in college business, he'd had their entire family eaten alive by spiders. Militia was tightening his leash, as she had been for several years. Tightening his leash so that all he can get away with is crucifying a guy. Crucifixion, a famously painless easy death, yes. Crucifixion? The death so painful and terrible that it's one of the central events in the biggest religion in the history of the world. I don't think anyone got eaten by spiders in the Bible. Yeah, oh boy. So, uh... What's the next thing we need to talk about? I, don't, I really don't want to dwell on the eating alive by spiders, if you don't mind. So, speaking of biblical things, or biblical phrases, by making this whole legion, this war college combat, a play through the court, Aquia tells us she'd forced her support in the nobility to be open in their backing. The minor loss of faith that had ensued from Foundling's victory had caused her Fairweather friends to immediately withdraw their support, allowing Aquia to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's a biblical phrase. She'd immediately move on those and made examples of them, of course. I believe that is to say, she'd immediately moved on those and made examples of them, of course. Probably having them be eaten alive by locusts. Don't worry. Her position in the court was now stronger than it had ever been. She's an icon. I have to say, one of the things that stood out to me here is, uh, who are these, to use William's word, absolute imbeciles who set themselves up as enemies of Eris at this point? Like, they kind of had it coming. The thing about, yeah, noble politics and praise are always a push and pull, give and take, careful dance of intrigue and murder. But the thing is, there are, three categories of people outside of the Dread Empress, who everything revolves around. You've got most of the nobles, you have the holders of the high seats, and possibly their immediate heirs, and then you have, literally just in a category alone, the heir or heiress. Don't set yourself up against the heiress plainly, unless you are the squire or the apprentice. Otherwise, you are guaranteed suffering because in praise it is not the meek who shall inherit that's another bible thing i'm on a roll now now point of order you say otherwise you will suffer are you saying that cat doesn't suffer for her rivalry with ubwa throughout the early parts and the later parts and the middle parts of this story she hasn't yet she thinks that maybe an orphanage got burned down so Again, by Pracy standards, nothing bad has happened. <laughs> Fair. But along the lines of an orphanage being burned down, you know, Eris is doing a lot to try to manipulate Kat. Now that the wager has failed, although maybe that was the plan all along, kind of, uh, Eris is moving to get some hooks into the 15th to uh, be ready to keep an eye on Kat, to make sure that things go in the direction that she wants them to go, and that doesn't go as well as she would have hoped. She tries to manipulate Sexy Sexy Ratface through his Sexy Sexy family, and he just says, if the subject was ever broached again, blades would come out. Yeah. Fool. Then she wanted to manipulate Juniper, but of course you can't, because Juniper has opened his taste for what she called human squabbling. And, to quote the text, had she not been the daughter of a general, Aquea would have already had her assassinated. But she can't. 
because it would be annoying to have Istra to be her enemy. So, uh, good Fair. job, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't say anything about Hakram here, but obviously, just obviously. Yeah. Uh, despite the lapse in going after Ratface through a family connection, I think Eris is a little too smart to <laughs> to go after Hakram in this in this situation. May I just make one more note about Pracy culture shining through in this moment before we go Please. on to actual content? Yeah. Eris gets the news. She tells her playmate, every major city in the south of Callow has risen in rebellion. What? The other girl replied, openly aghast. Ready, everyone? This is the line. Get ready. It's great. Aquia pretended she hadn't seen the loss of composure for her childhood companion's sake. Beautiful. She is generously overlooking a display of emotion in response to a major rebellion threatening to destabilize everything. Displays of emotion are so very beneath these children. Uba's right here. I mean, I'm not an authoritarian in my philosophy towards child-rearing, but I do think if a child shows emotion, they need to be locked in their room for a few hours to teach them. Hmm. Their room is, of course, filled with horrors, and they will have to sacrifice their childhood friend. Right, of course. That normal stuff. Right. Uh, we get a little bit more information about the Rebellion. The 6th and 9th Legions are heading that way. And, notably, and this is important for the story, the 15th will be joining them at half strength. Now, the 15th joining them, going to, to fight the Rebellion, makes sense. If the 15th weren't doing this, that would mean that something has collapsed narratively, because obviously Kat's going to deal with the Rebellion. Obviously. But uh, the 15th is only at half strength. What do you think the odds are that this is a logistical issue, a, a struggle in recruitment? Because personally, I would say those odds are pretty bad. I It seems to me likely that this half-strength issue is a purposeful nudging of stories. You send a weakened legion with the young named who's still coming into the, the fullness of her power this is setting her up at a deficit. She is in a with a transition name, not all of her aspects, still coming into what her name means and going up against a fully fledged name. You know, we've named. You've got William, the the lone swordsman, and she's only bringing a half legion. She is the underdog here, which basically means Black, I assume, is setting up a situation where Cat has to win despite the odds and uh that's one of cat's strengths it's literally one of her aspects and i think that's probably another one of black's nudges towards her name to to guide her into being as powerful as she can be we learned a little bit more about that in black section coming up but i just wanted to comment on the example here before we get there and i have to note that it also prevents william from having the benefit of one of the common heroic stories, which is victory against overwhelming odds. Well, the sixth There's and the ninth are nothing more also... dangerous than a cornered hero. The sixth and the ninth are also there, but yes, in, in dealing with the cast, sixth and the ninth don't have stories. Right. That's yes. That's very true. I assume, unless they're those are some of the missing Pracy named, which would be so fun to find out. Well, the sixth is Ironsides, so actually a little bit of a story there. Uh, you know, they're they're pretty cool. They're the anti callow Legion. Uh, and the ninth is the Regicides. So, you know, it's it's the Callowan Legions. But yes, not not nearly the same as having Cat at the head. 
What was the first magic trick Catherine ever did? Uh, didn't she make a knife disappear? Oh, very fair. What was the first named magic trick Catherine ever did? Just horsing around? Exactly. Uh, and Aquia is pretty powerful, I think. Well-trained, well-positioned, and a magical prodigy that we don't know that yet. And yet, we see a mangled goblin in the corner of the room, half of her face missing, chopped off by a brutal and lethal sword wound, various parts of her body snapped by falling rubble, and even now at a natural angle is barely functional. Quote, Not even the best necromancers on her payroll had been able to restore Chider to something palatable to look at. Catherine does a lot of necromancy. She starts off by raising a horse. She does some uh, goat explosions. Later on, she resurrects a couple more zombies, capital Z. Later on, she brings back a Tracy Noble to calm down some squabbling because it's convenient and gives her full functioning, full agency, so far as being under her thumb can be full agency. Mm-hmm. She resurrects a dread creature, Dread Emperoris, with a tap in the middle of a combat that's the size of a city. I am aware that I'm overestimating that. Do not write in to correct me. We don't want that kind of engagement. But apparently, Catherine really... She resurrects herself mid-battle. But apparently, Catherine's just such a talent there. Because Aquia, who's got the best control of anyone besides maybe Apprentice and Warlock and Militia... Didn't resurrect Chider herself. Though I suppose she does have expert necromancers, but still. I think it's interesting. She didn't do the necromancy. Does she ever do necromancy? How special is necromancy? I, I, I want to know. She idolizes one of the biggest necromantic events we see in, outside of, you know, the Dead King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just something in the water. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe that's why Catherine's special. There's just something in Callowin water. Hmm, maybe. So, this scene has all been taking place during this, this game of Shatranj, of course, that we've been, that we mentioned early on. And Eris wins, of course, because she's playing against an NPC. Um, but obviously, playing a game while discussing plans or arguing or whatever is a time honored trope. We see it several times in this story alone. We see it here, we see it with. Uh, with Kairos, we see it with the Bard. It, it shows up. And given the way the rules of reality work, these games line up with what's going on, especially, like, the biggest example of that is obviously the Bard, uh, the, the card game with the Bard. Um, bard cards, if you will. But is the reverse true at all? Do these games that you play while having a discussion have an effect on reality? Do they have weight because of how narratively satisfying it is, can you just, in going the other direction, can you cheat at a game of chatrons or uh, at cards if you strike up a conversation and talk about a clever scheme that you've been working on that doesn't relate to the game and time the beats of your story with your moves? Can that just like win you a game by creation nudging you towards victory? Or can your schemes be made better because you're really good at these games and you maybe play against somebody who's really bad at them so you can win in time with the plan that you're making. I don't know. I, am I, I don't know if I'm putting too much power into this, but it seems like there might be a way to uh, abuse this, this trope a little bit in Colernia. That is the most fascinating 
theory, this universe is ripe for abuse. <laughs> I, I mean, considering the nature of reality is a pretty abusive thing, every person alive is being used as, you know, the moving pieces in a wager being made by deities. So I would say that's a pretty abusive relationship. Speaking of using people as pawns, mm-hmm. I love how this section of the chapter ends. It's so good. Aquia ponders what her role will be, what she will in- inherit, inherit, and she waves aside all thoughts of it. Chancellor, warlord, black knight, dread empress? No, no, no. She was Aquia Sahelian. And she would inherit all of creation. Good for her. Good for her. That is... And only her. <laughs> this this chapter, it, which fits for an epilogue, they should, each, each of the sections, including the uh, epigraph, have such a powerful note to end on. It's, it's fantastic. And speaking the of... Sec- yep. <laughs> the next section opens on the 7th of Maja, which... It's probably two days before this last section, which I just think is interesting. It's a non-chronological presentation of events. So Black gets the news. Black talks to himself, to Catherine. Black figures out what was going on in Summerholm fully, even though he had a good idea. Catherine, we know, beat Bill and sent him off. But Black's analysis of the situation... Which, admittedly, he had not been there to see, but which he's right about, is she branded instructions on his name as the price for sparing him, then let him disappear into the wilds. She branded his name. Good job! Yeah, that's, uh, that's some strong imagery there. And also, yeah, pretty much what happened. However, that's a tragedy for him because he can't track down the swordsman because the only person who could feasibly kill him now was Squire unfortunate as that was. Which is doubly unfortunate considering that she beat him the first time. And if anybody remembers the pattern, that means there's only one more defeat coming up. And it's not his. Yeah, I I mean, Black is clearly banking on Cat being his brand of clever and capable and figuring out a way around the pattern of three, which she does in the most cat-like way imaginable, which we'll see. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's banking on something special from her, for sure. Black contemplates a lot. Nothing really happens in this section of the chapter, and it's a very good section. But we get this point. When he'd put down the unconquered champion last year, he'd been stuck in a pocket realm for what had ended up being three days in creation proper, and the calamities, the atrocities in his absence. But I'm very curious... Come on, E.E., tell me, please. I would say the calamities probably do calamities in his absence. How calamitastrophic. Mm-hmm. I, this is probably more just a coincidence than anything, but I do want to note the person that uh, Black puts down, in his words, was the unconquered champion. Uh, just as a reminder, Black has three aspects that all mostly relates to being a military commander, but one of his aspects is, in fact, Conquer. So there's, there's some uh, unfortunate naming going on there for that champion, I think. Not so unconquered now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> huh. 
So while he's in the pocket dimension, Captain slaughters a village in a fit of rage. Warlock mutilates the soul of an informant in his search for answers. And Black shudders to think of what might have happened had Assassin or Ranger gotten involved. But here's the thing about Assassin, everybody. Right? Am I right? You know what I'm thinking. Also, why didn't she uh, do anything? Do you think she just had full understanding and just neglected to calm anyone else down? Because it would all sort itself out. Yeah, Scribe not knowing what's going on is feels like the wrong answer. <laughs> she actually probably disappeared into looking it up, but due to the nature of her role, knew that Black wasn't like dead or anything. Captain was wholly impotent in that situation and turned to rage. Warlock is never impotent, and so turned to atrocity where answers may come from. Ranger probably didn't notice. It's three days and she's like, what? Already 50 or something? She's really old. Mm -hmm. And all the way up at the lake. Isn't that what happened to Kaiser Wilhelm II when World War II, or I'm sorry, when World War I started in his absence? He was up at the lake yelling at the Lone Swordsman? He went on a boat trip after issuing the blank check, and he couldn't be reached. Oops. That's not a bad summary of the reign of Vili II. Sorry, Vili Zwei, as we call him in German. Mm -hmm. But we, we've learned that Black knew a rebellion was going to happen, obviously. Uh, and he kind of discusses the pros and cons of a rebellion, and but more directly is thinking about Kat's involvement with it and what it means for her. Um, and he says, uh, you know, blood her troops, give her some real battlefield command, all these training things, basically. A really distant way to look at a war. Um, but then he says, internally, the inevitable losses would teach her some valuable lessons, true, and temper her reckless streak, as well as strengthen her emotional attachment to her soldiers, and by extension, the Empire. Mostly, a pretty good summary of what will happen. Nice job, Black. But I want to read one, one of these phrases again uh, to, to offer a better reaction to it. And temper her reckless streak. And my reaction to that is... <laughs> it's assuming that anything could temper anything in Cat, but let alone her recklessness, is a bold stance. But... You know, a little bit of optimism never hurt anybody, I guess. But Black takes bold stances in his education of Catherine, and for the most part, it pays dividends. Yeah, we we actually get uh, an answer to a question-slash-discussion we had uh, within the last couple of episodes. Um, we find out that Kat not knowing what's up with name lore was, yes, intentional on Black's part, and for a specific reason. Uh, he says... Ignorance on the subject of what she could and couldn't do with her name had allowed her to progress through leaps and bounds instead of a slow grind. It's apparently not knowing limitations is allowing Kat to break them, um, which is pretty interesting. Not something that I think we see again in this story in this particular way, but it's interesting that it's there, that there's like the, uh, uh, the power of ignorance or something that... Seems to work pretty well in Cat's sake. In Cat's... What's the word I'm looking for? Case. Seems to work pretty well in Cat's case. Have you ever read Norton Juster's phenomenal novel, The Phantom Tollbooth? I'm ashamed to admit I have not. It's up to you whether you want to hear this next part because there are spoilers. Well, this compares remarkably to The Phantom Tollbooth, where the main character, 
goes off on a great quest. And at the very beginning, he's told some stuff and then told, there's one more thing, but I can't tell you yet. And at the end, when he has rescued Rhyme and Reason, the princesses, he saves the day, everyone's together. It's a good old children's novel ending scene. And what was the one last thing there was to tell him? Well, that is impossible. But if you knew that, you would not have been able to do it. And I like that. And we need to reread the Phantom Toll Booth. And that, dear listeners, will be our June stretch goal. If you get us to $50 on Patreon in the month of June, we'll do a Phantom Toll Booth read. In fact, I'll read it either way. But I'll only tell you about it if you give me money. Patreon.com slash PGT. E-E. Black goes on to say that he wasn't really sure how to teach Cat directly because he wasn't trained directly by anybody either. Uh, we get the the sentence here. He'd become the squire when there was no Black Knight, and most of what he knew was either self-taught or derived from name dreams. Interesting that the squire can exist in with the absence of a knight to be a squire too. You know, the position of a squire, the lowercase r role of a squire, is something that is that really only exists in relation to a knight. Uh, and here we have that not necessarily being the case with the role, which is interesting given how you would think that story would have developed in the first place. Uh, so I guess we maybe are learning that knight-based names or the big ones, maybe Black Knight and potentially White Knight, Knight Errant. I don't know. We don't know which ones necessarily fall into this, but you've got a squire up first, even if there isn't a knight to be under. I, it's interesting that he had to, to squire on his way to it, despite there not being a knight there. Unless he trained under the White Knight. I'm kidding, we know better. <laughs> that is fascinating. Why wasn't there a Black Knight? Because based on the ascent of Nim, it seems pretty easy to get one. Perhaps the turmoil in the Empire at the time. One couldn't actually be assigned the name because there was too much of competing claim on the mantle? Yeah, it very well could be as well that the previous Black Knight was killed as Black was, as things were shifting and Black took, became a squire and then the, yeah. Yeah, you're, that very well could be it. Black starts showing some affection towards Catherine. He's always had affection towards her. Game recognized game. But he assesses the situation with... It was a good thing he hadn't had her smothered in her sleep, as the local overseer's recommendation had originally been. Aww. It's adorable. I just think it's really nice that he didn't smother her in her sleep, because smothering a child in their sleep is perhaps one of the most evil things I could imagine reading about that only a terrible and bad character would do. Definitely very villainous to do something like smothering a child in their sleep with a pillow. I have been in the same house as a sleeping child, most nights of my life recently. And I gotta say, I have smothered very few of them. That's very noble of you. Thank you. He'd been ready to tie up that particular loose end, should it prove necessary, when he'd, when he'd gone to deal with mazes, but their unexpected meeting had opened a better alternative. Here, my first thought is, unexpected meeting, huh? Black, you should know better. But then, oh, because you had an unexpected meeting, that was probably a very good sign to you to go somewhere with this. Because if there's an unexpected meeting, that means something. He expects unexpected meetings. Yeah, running into a potential claimant for a name related to your own, while you, somebody with a role, are traveling around with somebody else with a name, yeah, there's that kind of coincidence is not, is not one. It's not a coincidence. 
But speaking of various names and how they interact, um, we've talked a lot, or at least I have, we've talked a lot about how magic is felt by different people and specifically cat and where where that's going to go the different sensory inputs that characters get in relation to powerful things um and i think on this reread we're doing a lot to try to really dive into how individuals interact with creation in different ways especially like this the more supernatural kind of things names and magic and in this second to last i guess third to last paragraph of this epilogue we get a little a bit a little bit about that that I think is really interesting. I think I'm just going to read this. Um, Cat, you know, we know that Cat thinks of her name as being a living beast, something inside of her that's roaring and, you know, moving on its own and is kind of its own thing like that. And Black gives us, the reader, some very interesting information. He says, The way a named felt their role revealed much about them. Warlock said his own was akin to opening floodgates, for he rightfully feared the capricious nature of his power. Militia compared her own to slipping on a pair of gloves, perfectly fitted to her. And him? Gears. An enormous machine made up of a hundred thousand gears, all of them turning slowly, coldly, implacably. And leading from that, we get his, his aspects. Lead, conquer, destroy. It's a very cool scene to, to be diving into his name like this, but also just, you know, some direct descriptions of what people's role feels like to the individual that has them. Um, we don't see that super often, so it's, it's interesting when it does show up. Which makes you wonder how often we might see the other it's described. I don't recall seeing further descriptions. Really, I just remembered Black Skears and Catherine's Beast. But... Is there any indication when Antigone slays the greatest beast ever seen, ever, ever? Do we get any indication of what's going on back there? Do we see a moment where the Kingfisher Prince talks about whatever? We should keep an eye on that. I I agree. I copied this excerpt here into our notes document and i want to continue to add to it is as interludes give us more information for sure so how would you describe black deeply in control i would too but he loses it here totally he ends the book with a loss of control burying his teeth at the heavens black dared them to deny him just as planned he said which is such hubris such pointless risk it, and I love it. I will remind you, this is the second time something like this has happened with Black in this first book. It, it A few, yes. like halfway through the book, he did something very similar. And I think we came to the conclusion that he's so in control, he knows exactly how far he can push things. He's so outside of the game, outside of the wager, that he can do things like that and get away with it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely odd when he just fully leans into the trope of being the villain like that. The mastermind villain. But, you know, he's taken the time to learn to be that. And I think we have taken enough time for this episode, because that's all that we have for today. Join us Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss... Whatever happened to the Wizard of the West? Will we ever see more of this mysterious ranger? And how do you pronounce the Fields of Strigus? Huh. That would mean one thing... 
yonder. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Erratic is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Erratic's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Ominous Bardic Strings was Gabriel Acoustic Folk Guitar by Kazoom. Music for the epigraph was Mysterious Celesta by Ashot Danielian Composer. Laughter was Crowd Laughing Wag by Pixabay. Yonderstein was Dramatic Reveal by Serge Quadrado. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week yonder. Okay, this might be a post-credits, but we've got a um, an alignment chart, or a political compass, maybe, of evil guy and good guy who you hate and who you love to hate. So, the bad guy you hate is obviously Billy. Mm-hmm. The bad guy you love to hate is the Grillgrim. Mm-hmm. I realize these don't conform with the good and evil, but... They're bad guys. Smothering a child is a bad thing. Um, the bad guy... The no. bad guy you, th- then you have to have a bad guy you love, and that's... Kairos. Kairos, of course. A good guy you love, and that's the Kingfisher. No, that's a good guy who's a lover. Sure, either way. A good guy that you... Oh, that's a good lover. Who's a... <laughs> We need a good guy that you love to hate and a good guy you hate. So a good guy you love to hate. I don't know if they're... Mirror Knight. Yeah. Is he actually a good guy, though? He's he's borderline. I guess by the end he is. Okay, sure. He can be... We can love to hate the Mirror Knight. I can't... I can't lose... He's just... He's a himbo. <laughs> and that's empty. just... <laughs> so beautiful to me. His head is just full of mirrors. It's great. Unbreakable the one mirror. brain cell reflecting it on itself. <laughs> and then, is there is there a good guy that we hate? It, there aren't that many truly good people <laughs> in the story. And I don't even mean, like, perfect. I just mean generally good. Like, I don't hate Hanno. He's great. I don't... Ranger. 
I don't know, though. Elaborate. <laughs> no. I have a bow to my head right now. Hmm. Uh, I just... It can't be any of Ranger's Apprentices, obviously. No. It it can't be... I mean, anybody that's truly good just, like, doesn't last. There's every, Everybody's a little, a little gray. The only... I mean, there's Kingfisher, but obviously we love him. And I also love... I love Hanno, and I mean he's got some issues, but he leans towards being a pretty good fella. Well, I guess we just don't hate good people. What do you know? Which I think makes us the best kind of people. Mm-hmm. 